Hello and welcome to the Jewish's Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso, and I am the creator of Jewish's, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week, I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Welcome to the Jewish's podcast. I am so excited for the final installment of my three-part series talking all about death. The first one talked about conceptions around it. What are the general attitudes Jews have towards death? And then the second one talked about the physicality of it. What does mourning look like? What is Shiva? How do we prepare our bodies? Do we cremate? That kind of thing. Oh, you just, I think that was a little earthquake. That's what I get for being in California. So this last episode is probably the most anticipated one out of the three parts. And this is talking about the afterlife. It is one of the most frequently asked questions I get. What do Jews believe? Is there heaven? Is there hell? I find a lot of people, especially who are raised Christian or come from Christian backgrounds, are fascinated by the way that Jews interpret or more accurately don't interpret the afterlife. So I want to start off with the normal housekeeping that I've been doing for these last couple episodes, and that is to say that Judaism is both vast and complicated. Many beliefs have evolved over the centuries, with communities retaining different levels of said evolution. So what one belief may have built into, the other one is still holding strong with that prior belief, and they are both valid. There's also too many belief systems for me to possibly cover, so I've covered the basic general ideas of them. This is in no way meant to be an in-depth deep dive into each topic, but more an overview of each aspect of this topic. I think that's the... Nope, I forgot the most important thing. I have a Patreon where you can support me. Uh, my Patreon starts at $1 a month, and there are three different tiers uh, with different levels of rewards. And you can request podcast episodes on my Patreon. That's the best way to get in contact with me. As much as I love having my Instagram DMs open, my Twitter DMs open, there there is no guarantee that I will ever respond to your message there because they are just so full all the time. So the best way to contact me is through my Patreon. Plus you get to support the podcast that way. So I think that's everything. I think we're actually getting there. I think we're all the way there. So let's start. If we're going to be 100% honest, Judaism, modern Judaism specifically, does not exert a huge amount of time talking on the topic of the afterlife. But even on a subject where we aren't entirely focused, there are centuries worth of readings and more opinions than there are Jews. Modern Judaism doesn't often focus too much on what happens after death because we're taught to focus on olam hazeh, this world rather than focus on olam haba, the world to come. To quote The Good Place, which I can have, a, I could talk about the show for ages. I have a lot of problems with The Good Place, but I think I could see so much of Jewish philosophy and Jewish perspectives uh, embroiled into it. I felt like it was a really good blend of 
what Jews believe. Um, and so much so that I, I use this quote a lot to talk about this concept because it's a very easy way for people who are unfamiliar with it to understand. To quote The Good Place, we should do good things because we are good, not because we are seeking moral dessert. And I love referring to heaven as moral dessert, but I also love the idea that we are not doing good things. We should not necessarily just do good things so that we can be rewarded. And we shouldn't not do bad things to avoid punishment. We should do good things and treat people well. Uh, because we are in this together, we should focus on our actions and creating a good, equitable world that we can live in together because it is the right thing to do as opposed to doing it for the sole purpose of reaching heaven, which you can only do in certain philosophies by doing those good things. And by good things, it can very much differ and very much vary by what you believe. To quote, a related story is told of a pious Jew who boasted to his rabbi that he had saved another Jew's soul. A beggar had asked him for a meal. He agreed but insisted that first they must pray the afternoon mincha prayers. Before serving him his meal, he ordered the beggar to wash his hands and recite the appropriate blessings and thereafter to recite the hamotzi prayer over the bread. The rabbi showed his annoyance with his pious disciple. There are times, my son, when you must act as if there were no God. The disciple, taken aback by this counsel, protested, Should I act as if no God existed? The rabbi replied, When someone comes to you in need, act as if there were no God in the universe. Act as if you alone are in the world, and that there is no one to help him except you yourself. The disciple replied, And have I no responsibility for his soul? The rabbi replied, take care of your soul and his body, not vice versa. And I love this story because it really shows how there is a dis there is a difference between the way that we approach our souls and the afterlife, not as if it is something that you are responsible for someone else for. And I think that that's something that you see a stark difference in between Judaism and say like evangelical Christianity. I remember there's a TikTok this person is like, I have to save your soul. And I ended up making a video saying that I have such sympathy for people who genuinely think this because it must be such a burden. That doesn't make mean that I don't, you know, abhor the way that they proselytize or their teachings or the way that they harass people under the guise of, you know, saving someone's soul. But if you genuinely believed that what you were doing was saving someone's soul from eternal damnation and fiery pits, yeah, I can understand why you would want to do that. Because if that's what you're told, why wouldn't you, you know? But here we are taught that we are not responsible for someone else's soul. We can take care of their body that exists here on this planet because that's what we have control over. Now, Jews will often vehemently reject the concept of hell in our theology. And that's because the concept of hell that we normally see, including the definition you find when you Google it, is based on Christianity. And if we're going to go by Christian definitions, then no, we don't have hell. We also wouldn't have heaven at that point either because our conceptions of it are so different. So chances are you've probably heard someone go, no, Jews don't have hell. Yeah, we don't have hell by Christian standards. We don't have the same Christian perceptions. But if you're you know, depends on the definition you're using. So they're not wrong, 
But there's also an argument to be made that we do have hell, just in a completely different way. What's another thing? Real quick, um, it's important to understand that the Messianic age refers to the arrival of the Moshiach, or the Messiah. Ultimately, it'll be an age of peace, Torah learning, without pain, suffering, famine. The temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Um, but how this comes around is seen differently in different Jewish movements. Some view it as a literal one person, the Messiah will come back or come for the first time, whereas others think it's just an age or a concept. So it does depend on which movement of Judaism you are part of. Now, importantly, Jewish concepts of death are not heavily impacted by the Tanakh, um, but rather much later texts and discussions. In fact, very few of the fully conceptualized uh, perspectives and beliefs around what happens in the afterlife are actually citing more than just a couple different uh, lines from the Tanakh. So what does it look like? What does someone believe about the afterlife? What does a Jew believe about the afterlife? Well, there are some examples I can give. Let's look at one from Chabad, right? Let's categorize the four stages of the human soul. One, the holy spiritual existence of the soul before it enters the body. Two, physical life. Three, post-physical life in Gan Eden, which is the Garden of Eden, but is used as a synonym for heaven. For the world to come, Olam Haba, which follows the resurrection of the dead. But that is just one movement, one very specific movement's perception. What's an alternate example of these stages of the human soul? Let's look at this one. One, the holy spiritual physical existence of the soul before it enters the body. Two, physical life. Three, a cleansing period. Four, reincarnated life. And then you rinse and repeat steps two to four. Five, post-physical life in Gan Eden, again used as a synonym for heaven. And six, the world to come, Olam Haba, which follows the possible resurrection of the dead. But there are, in theory, an infinite number of combinations of the, the stages of this cycle that we're going to discuss below. Some of them are mutually exclusive, while other, the others are totally compatible with each other. Many of these don't exist without the exist. Uh, they do not exist independently of one another. Reincarnation is not incompatible with heaven, nor is it incompatible with resurrection or hell. Like Jewish things, it is extremely complicated, and chances are you might leave here a little bit more confused than you already were. Let's start with the easiest perception of what happens after you die. And I say that this is the easiest because it, it is. It's the most simple, and that is the perception that when our bodies die, that is the last of it. When our bodies die, that is the end. You are your brain, and when your brain ceases to function and your heart stops beating, you no longer exist, and there is no sort of afterlife. And there are so many Jews who vehemently believe this and ardently believe, and it is just as Jewish as the next. But what about the more classic Jewish perceptions, right? Let's start with heaven, which is only slightly less controversial than hell, but it is by no means less clear. Uh, I'm sorry, by no means more clear or less confusing and controversial. I just dropped the entirety of my microphone. Fingers crossed it still works. Generally, heaven is regarded as the resting place of the divine and the heavenly court. It is known as Shemaim. However, in regards to the afterlife, Heaven is believed to be the Garden of Eden, or Gan Eden, which is the paradise from which humanity came, to which we will then again return. Now, 
before Eve said, I really want to try this apple, which also side tangent, did you know that the tree from the fruit of knowledge didn't actually necessarily have to be an apple? There have been many ideas over what it was over the years, including a pomegranate, a fig, which makes sense considering they were covering their their bits with fig leaves. Um, but it didn't. It wasn't always an apple. The idea that it was an apple didn't come about until way later. And it makes a ton more sense if it was a pomegranate or a fig, both of which are one of the sacred species of Judaism. So I'm on team pomegranate. Now, the physicality of heaven is very much debated, though it is decidedly does not include halos or harps. It might include lyres. Lear? Lyres? Lears? Ooh, I don't think I've ever pronounced that out loud before. It's one of those words you read in your head all the time. It is not as is often portrayed in um, cinema or media, a cloud-based place to hang out with angel wings and halos. Now, in later Jewish texts, it discusses that heaven is split into seven segments, which are named in the Talmud as Vilon, Rakia, Shechakim, Zebul, Maon, Machon, and Aravot. However, there are alternate lists with alternate names. So I just pulled one, but there are other ones. So if you've heard a different list, you're not wrong either. Now, along with the four rivers of Gan Eden, which include the Tigris and Euphrates, certain dis- uh, texts discuss that Within the borders of Gun Eden, there are places that people can go and there are, you know, all sorts of things there, including the Palace of Nut, where the righteous study Torah after they die, but before the resurrection. And I love that so much. I lo- love nothing more than the fact that we believe in a place called the Palace of Nut, where people go to study Torah after they die. The righteous just go there and they're like, yeah, I'm dead. I'm in paradise. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to argue about Torah even more. That's, that's my, that's what I'm doing. I love it. And I'm going to go to the Palace of Nut to do it. So I just, I felt like I had to mention that, you know? To quote, the soul of the righteous at dead, after being separated from the body and its functions, ascended to heaven where it was kept in the treasury beneath God's throne of glory. Shabbat 152b. This soul then awaited the moment when it would be reunited with the body at the resurrection. Along with the view of the soul being kept in the heavenly treasury, the belief existed that the soul of the righteous remained in relations to its dead body until the final decomposition of the latter. During this interim, interim period, the soul would be ascending to heaven and descending back to the grave. And this is really interesting, especially if you listened to last episode or read the blog, which discusses how your soul uh, moved around after it was buried. Now there's the belief that your soul could move around the graveyard and it stayed kind of close to the grave, which is why we put rocks and we bury it very quickly. Um, but this one offers the explanation that those the souls of the righteous can travel between heaven and earth or back specifically to their grave until the resurrection. Now we're going to talk about who actually makes their way to heaven because I think that's something that a lot of people focus on. They think that there's an automatic criteria here. Now we will, um, there's a very common belief that all but the most insidious of souls will make their way to heaven, even if they have to go through the cleansing period. Now, what is the cleansing period? In comes the controversial bit, hell, purification, and purgatory, because depending on how you define them, they're all one and the same thing. According to the most common definition, which is highly impacted by Christianity, hell is a location in the afterlife in which evil souls are subjected to punitive suffering, most often through torture as eternal punishment after death. 
However, in Judaism, hell is defined differently. So most people don't use that term at all, which is again why you hear people vehemently arguing over whether or not we even have hell to begin with. One great metaphor for the Jewish hell purgatory cleansing place is that of the supernal washing machine. I usually say the soul washing machine because halfway through saying the word supernal, I am trying to say supernatural and I'm not talking about the TV show at all. The way to understand the soul washing machine is if a pair of socks are disgustingly dirty, like ran in mud, then through cat litter, then left them in a field for three weeks. I mean, honestly, at that point, is it worth saving them? But in this case, let's say they're your favorite socks. Is it a punishment to wash that sock in the washing machine? Now, that's not to say, would it not be painful? Probably. Um, Yeah, getting out the filth probably would suck. Probably wouldn't be a very pleasant experience. But are you punishing the socks for being dirty? No, of course not. That's what socks do. Socks get dirty and then you clean them. That's just the way it works. And this experience that we're calling hell is merely that cleansing process, that cleaning process. And again, that's not to say it's not painful or difficult or hard. It is believed that when you go through this cleansing process, you are reliving all of the negatives that were caused in life. To quote, after death, the soul returns to its divine source, together with all the godliness it has extracted from the physical world by using it for the meaningful purposes. The soul now relives its experiences on another plane and experiences the good it accomplished during its physical lifetime as incredible happiness and pleasure, and the negative as extremely painful. Now that those negatives would be the harm you've caused, the sins you've committed, the pain you have caused others. Now, the term for hell that we generally use is Gehenna or Gehennam. And this name comes from the Valley of Hinnom, which is just west of the old city of Jerusalem. I also read something that said it was south, but now I'm just going to go with west because that's what I found most commonly. Um, if I'm wrong, please don't hesitate to let me know. It is believed that there were child sacrifices performed there by Canaanites, which is why it became associated by ancient Jews with evil and suffering. Now, there are going to there are so often comments that say that Gehenom wasn't actually hell. It was a dump yard. It was a trash place where they burned stuff. They just burned all the garbage like a giant incinerator. And I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but this appears to come from the commentary of Rabbi David uh, Kimhi around 1200 AD, which states that Gehenna is a repugnant place filled with, into which filth and cadavers are thrown and in which fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and bones, on which account, by analogy, the judgment of the wicked is called Gehenna. So yeah, that idea that it was actually a burning trash heap unfortunately seems to come from a much later commentary, which there's no archaeological evidence for, unfortunately. And I believe that I also believed this misconception for quite a while. So I'm so sorry if you learned it from me. I don't remember saying it in the last couple of years, but I did know that. I did think it was true and I was wrong. So what actually happens in this place, right? If it's not an eternal fiery trash heap, what actually goes there? And this varies greatly in both tradition and text. Enoch gives us the duration of one's stay there, which I think is a huge point of contention for a lot of people. Because again, one of the really harsh downfalls, one of the biggest quote unquote discrepancies between Jewish hell and Christian hell is 
how long you're there. I mean, I was told I was going to go, I was be, I was eternally damned by a Christian for being a Jew. And I was like, eternal? Forever? It just keeps on going and going and going? Um, but no, in Judaism, almost every tradition agrees that the concept of hell in Judaism is limited to 12 months in Gehenna. To quote, the judgment of the generation of the flood continued 12 months. The judgment of Job continued 12 months. The judgment of the Egyptians continued 12 months. The judgment of Gog and Magog in the time to come will continue 12 months. The judgment of the wicked in Gehenom continues 12 months. For it is said, it will be from one month until its same month. Isaiah 66, 23. Another quote. A divine voice emerged and said to them, Did you emerge from the cave in order to destroy my world? Return to your cave. They went again and sat there for 12 months. They said, The judgment of the wicked in Gehenna lasts for 12 months. Surely their sin was atoned in that time. A divine voice emerged and said to them, Emerge from your cave. They emerged. Everywhere that Rabbi Eliezer would strike, Rabbi Shimon would heal. Rabbi Shimon said to Rabbi Eliezer, My son, you and I suffer for the entire world, suffice for the entire world, as the two of us are engaged in the proper study of Torah, Shabbat 33b. So again, here it is agreed upon that the time of cleansing or hell is limited to 12 months. Now, some people also attribute this to the mourning period, which we discussed in our last episode. So that mourning period that the primary mourners experience. However, like literally every Jewish thing ever, some people do believe that, um, no, uh, 12 months is not standard. It is almost the standard, except for folks that are so horrifically evil that they need a special kind of punishment. Now, one of the things that we see is that the people who cannot be rehabilitated through this cleansing process, right? If the soul is unwilling to be cleansed, it cannot get cleansed after those 12 months, it simply ceases to exist. According to Rabbi Jeffrey W. Dennis, Gehenna is about remorse, whereas Christian and Islamic notions of hell are all about despair. If there are any unredeemable souls, their fate is annihilation and non-being, not eternal torment. To quote, after 12 months, their bodies are consumed, their souls are burned, and a wind scatters them under the soles of the feet of the righteous. Rosh Hashanah 17a. So this one essentially says, if you can't be rehabilitated, you will simply cease to exist. We're not going to punish you forever. You will just no longer be part of the game. But there are some unpopular opinions, and I say unpopular because they're one, more difficult to find, and two, generally are just have Jews immediately going, no, mm -mm, mm -mm, nope. But some people still believe them, so I think it's important to talk about them. Now, they believe that those who are truly evil will remain in Gehenna until they have served out their time by reliving the, reliving the suffering they have caused. Um, and if their suffering, the, if the horrific greatness of their actions requires more time to relive, they will stay there until it is completed or until Gehenna itself crumbles. Some sources believe that the wicked stay in Gehenna until the resurrection and then the Messiah passing through it redeems them. This comes from Emek uh, HaMelech. So one of the things that I often hear when people find out that most Jews don't believe in hell, they say, well, what about Adolf Hitler? What happened to him? And in this perception, if you have to relive the suffering you have caused, he will essentially be there for eternity, right? Because to go through every horrific thing you have ever done, including the impact on people, the way that he has impacted the world, 
that suffering, in my personal opinion, um, which of course every Jew will debate, is that he will never be able to come out of that. Let's say his soul does want to be redeemed. And you would have to, he would have to live through that and feel the suffering of every human being who he has ever touched. And I think at that point, we're looking at kind of an eternal situation. So then it goes to where do you, what do you believe will happen after that point, right? Is it until Gehenna no longer exists, until the Moshiach comes? That's another great uh, discussion point that I've read a lot on. Now, the majority of Jewish thought, however, agrees that once you've passed on, the soul only remains in Gehenna for a maximum of 12 months. To quote, the core of the soul is unadulterated goodness. The good we accomplish is infinite, the evil but shallow and superficial. So even the most wicked of souls, say our sages, experiences at most 12 months of Gehenna, followed by an eternity of heaven. Now, what does Gehenna actually look like? What, what is hell? Now, we have speculated many times over the centuries. Enoch's writing describes it as a vast, fiery furnace. Uh, so yes, we kind of have the whole fire and brimstone thing. But Masachet Gehenna describes seven uh, Madori precincts or palaces, just like we see uh, reflected in heaven. So when they're split up, the seven sections of hell are known as Sheol, Abadan, Birshachet, uh, uh, it is believed that the river of light separates Gehenna from these seven heavens. So you can kind of see them reflected back at each other. And it, it is also believed that there are rivers of, to quote, gall, pitch, and poison flowing between these seven circles, which I think is just fascinating. In some older, less common beliefs, there are angels of punishment within each circle, which administer specific forms of suffering to the inhabitants of that circle based on their sin. Um, however, a, lo a lot in these versions, I'm sorry, even in these versions, inhabitants are spared suffering on Shabbat. So every Saturday, you get a nice little break from torture, if we're in that perception. But in a lot of modern interpretations and modern writings, the conclusion is that the angels are there, but their purpose of punishment has worn away, and they are more like the keepers of the gates. I heard someone compare them to Kerberos in Hades, but, you know. Now, Jewish tradition has largely given way to the consistent belief that punishment after death is solely by reliving and dealing with one's own actions, rather than being punished by some sort of devil figure. So, you are the person who does the work. Your soul is the one that does it based on your its own actions. It's not like in the good place where they have, I think it's chainsaw bears, I think. I think I remember chainsaw bears and butthole spiders. Those are the really important ones. Honestly, the good place is a show that I've seen so many times. Okay. We're also going to talk about the terminology of Sheol really quick because a lot of the time I see that brought up in Christian circles. But Sheol is a very common term to refer to the afterlife in many different ways. And it is uh, mentioned as one of the circles in Gehenna, but it is not generally used to refer to hell in Jewish circles. I often hear it from Christians. So that's hell, right? It's not really what you were expecting, or maybe it entirely was. But let's talk about my favorite thing, which is reincarnation, also known as Gilgul Neshamat, or the, the cycle or the wheels of the soul. This form of reincarnation is largely accepted in conjunction with the above concepts of heaven, hell, and the world to come, which we'll discuss in the next one. Some believe that the reincarnation cycle ends with the coming of the Messiah, while others believe that it is finished 
when one has learned all of the lessons it's required to learn, which are generally considered the mitzvot, to quote, through the notion of reincarnation, though the notion of reincarnation is not found in Talmudic literature, and though it was opposed by major medieval Jewish philosophers, such as Sadia and Aibul, and ignored by others such as Maimonides and Yehuda Halavi, it becomes omnipresent and, incre and of increasing importance in medieval capitalistic literature and thereafter, and it clearly persists in the popular Jewish imagination to this day. So it becomes more popular as time goes on, even though it wasn't initially included. Importantly, the Jewish concept of the soul is somewhat different than others, so it is kind of important to talk about it real quick. The Kabbalists understood the three biblical terms that came to characterize the independent part of the human person, nefesh, neshama, and ruach, the the def uh, to define three distinct parts of the soul. Nefesh came to mean life itself, the vital part of the person. Neshama is the part of the soul which is concerned with mystical cognition. Ruach involves the power of ethical discriminations. Essentially, Gilgul posits that the Jewish soul leaves the body, experiences the cleansing of Gehenna, and returns to earth in order to live out another life. However, this interpretation did not appear until later um, and is largely informed by the Kabbalah and other forms of Jewish mysticism. While many Jewish thinkers believe that human souls may only reincarnate into human bodies, the idea that a person may reincarnate as animals or even inanimate objects and plants soon came into play, particularly in Hasidic circles. First mentioned in Sefer Hatemuna, every time I write the, uh, every time I read out the transliterations, my brain glitches Im impressively. The concept of reincarnation into an animal is seen as a punishment for a sin, as well as an opportunity for growth. Fascinatingly, um, I don't, oh, I do mention it. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. The three distinct parts of the soul, as mentioned above, are believed to have different parts in the afterlife, but are also able to split and reincarnate into different bodies. Supposedly, the souls of tzadikim, or especially righteous people, um, are reincarnated into the bodies of fish, lending to the tradition of eating fish on Friday nights. Now, I was when I was reading about this, I did stumble across another blog, which actually said that there are two supposed traditions from this, one which says you should eat fish, and one which says you shouldn't eat fish as a result of this. And I thought this was really interesting because it's, again, a Jewish interpretation of one, one belief that has many different uh, reactions. Now, it is also through Gilgul that the concept of the Dybbuk comes into being. Uh, parts of the soul which are unwilling or unable to cross over find a human host to attach to. And I've already done an episode on Dibukim. It's called Debunking the Dybbuk Box. And even though I do talk about the Dybbuk Box specifically, I also talk about what Dibukim are. Now, reincarnation is also something that supports the idea that all Jewish converts have Jewish souls. Um, now, there's the belief that Jewish converts have an innate Jewish soul because they were there when we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. But we have numbers for that. Supposedly, I believe the number is 600,000 Jews, and there are many more than 600,000 Jews today. So it is supported by reincarnation in the sense that the human soul could split and therefore be born into uh, new bodies, which is why we now have more than 600,000 Jews. So in this concept, in reincarnation, a Jewish soul simply incarnates into a non-Jewish body, and then they go through the journey of once again finding their way back home to Judaism. And that is reincarnation. So what about resurrection, right? Well, I guess we can actually... So resurrection is uh, 
triat hametim, again, transliterations. There will be some sort of resurrection when the Moshiach or the Messiah comes. However, there is no clear consensus on what the resurrection actually means or who will be resurrected. There is a lot of discussion on this topic and no clear answers, which is very Jewish. To quote, Seva Habahir is important because it sets the agenda for the discussion of the afterlife in the Jewish mystical literature that follows. The issue is not the grand resurrection to come. The fact that God will resurrect the dead is assumed. What is of primary concern to the mystics, however, and what remains their most distinctive contribution to the development of afterlife doctrine in Judaism is their betrayal of the fate of the soul in the period between death and resurrection. And essentially, that's what we've been talking about. Heaven, hell, reincarnation, all of that is supposed to happen in the period bef- uh, between the creation of the soul and the resurrection. In general understandings, the sounding of the shofar will resurrect the dead from where they will uh, they once were to be judged. Many believe that those buried in the physical land of Eretz Israel will return first. Uh, and to quote, according to the Talmud, all bodies not already in Israel will be rolled through underground tunnels back to the Holy Land. I'm sorry, I need to take a moment just to think about that. You did hear me correctly. I was, I did say that properly. It is believed that you, if you are not buried in the physical land of Eretz Israel, when the resurrection happens, your body will be tumbleweeded through underground tunnels to the Holy Land for resurrection, which is why a lot of people just plan to be buried there anyway. Um, but I, whoop, I can't even think about that. Just tumbleweeded, underground, little tunnels. What is this? This uh, six flags. Um, and supposedly, according to different literature, that is a very deeply spiritually uncomfortable thing to happen. It's painful, which is why people choose to be buried in Eretz Israel beforehand. Now, what happens after this resurrection? Maimonides believed that this resurrected would eventually die a second death, at which point the souls of the righteous will enjoy a spiritual bodiless existence in the presence of God. However, uh, the Mishnah states that those who do not believe in the resurrection will have no share in Olam Haba in that world. So it's confusing. To quote, at the time of the resurrection, the individual will soul, the individual soul will be split among the various bodies it once inhabited, and the portion of the soul whose mission was completed in a particular body will not return to that body. Fascinating. Um, and the most notable thoughts regarding resurrections is the frequent disregard for it as a whole. Many movements just completely ignore it. While others are thinking it's literally going to be lit- it's going to be a literal resurrection, bodies. So the world to come, uh, olam haba, meaning the world to come. The term refers to a few different things that we've discussed. It is often used as a uh, catch-all term for any form of the afterlife or heaven, however that Jew may perceive them. So if you believe that uh, the afterlife is just non-existence, you could call that the olam haba. Uh, however, it is also used to refer to the world after the coming of the Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead whatever that may look like, because again, that does vary by your movement. Now, this world uh, after the coming of the Moshiach is generally considered perfect and free of all suffering. Here, like with resurrection, it is unclear if people are capable of death and what said death would entail. So where do we get to that? The end of the cycle, much like the good place, which is where we started, Many Jewish conceptions of the end of this life cycle include the dissipation of the human soul back into Hashem or the divine eminence or the divine being. This is supported by classic Jewish thinkers like Maimonides above, as well as contemporary discussions about death and the afterlife. 
it's what I personally believe is the end of the cycle. And many Jews do. Just blissful non-being, just melting back into the energy source from which we came or our souls came. And this is another one. I'm sure many of you are non-Jews that are listening. And this is what I get asked out about a lot, especially by non-Jews. What will happen to non-Jews after they die? And over the years, there have been many discussions about what happens to those who are not Jewish after they die. And while Judaism was never as outspoken about the afterlife as Christians, that does not mean that certain Jews did not hold potentially damaging beliefs about it. Anti-Semites are very quick to pull out texts that argues that non-Jews have no place in the world to come, but this is just one perception. It is one belief system. It is not something that all Jews hold. Um, there are just as many texts that say that righteous Gentiles have just as much of a share in the world to come as Jews. And as I've hopefully conveyed, there are more perceptions on the afterlife than there are Jews. There are no official doctrines that tell us exactly what happens. In fact, our quote-unquote official doctrine frequently contradicts itself regarding this. And anecdotally, most modern Jews believe that whether or not you were Jewish in your life does not dictate whether or not you are included in their perception of the next step. Um, and I think that's important. So there we have it. That's the afterlife. And I'm sure I've missed things. So if you think I missed something really important, please feel free to email me. As always, my sources are going to be next, but I did want to say thank you to someone who left a really nice uh, review. As always, I check all of my reviews on Apple Podcasts. They are extremely helpful for boosting the podcast. We have 94. Um, I don't know why, but for some reason, Apple Podcasts has been cutting out the last sentence of people's reviews. So let's read part of this and we can see the end of it. Uh, I think this one's really funny. It says, I've only listened to one episode so far, the one debunking Dybbuk boxes, but I'm already a fan. It's so exciting to hear the voice of sanity in a field which easily and often veers off the rails. Well-researched, thoughtful, and she even cites her. And then it just ends. That's it. It's just the end of it. There's nothing else there. But thank you to Cypher Luana, I believe that's it, uh, for that lovely uh, review, even though I think it got cut off there. I really do appreciate it. And I really do read all of the reviews on Apple Podcasts. They mean so much. And they are a huge, huge help um, in supporting the podcast. So thank you all so much. You can stay up to date with me on my website, jewitches.com. I promise you can sign up for emails. And I pinky promise with a kiss that I will not send you more than five a month. And I don't mean that nicely. I do not pay to pay send more of them. I literally do not have the ability to send you more. You can follow my Instagram, which is Jewitches. You can follow my Twitter, which is The Jewitches, where I'm very active. And I think we've gotten to the end. They want to do sources now. As always, my sources will be in the description box. Um, but we've got a vbs.org article, worship, um, where they talk about Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who has a sermon on what happens after we die, Chabad.com, what happens after death, the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and Mysticism by Rabbi Jeffrey W. Jeff Jeffrey w. Dennis, a digital commons article. Uh, we cite Wikipedia for the common definition of hell. We have a Chabad.com article, which again, what happens after death. And then a Chabad article talking about, do Jews believe in hell? They've got Gehenna in the Synoptic, Synoptic Gospels, a paper by Dr. Andrew Pitts, Jewish virtual library talking about Gilgul. We have a great book from uh, uh, Google Books, which is the meaning of death in Judaism. Then we also have My Jewish Learning, Jewish Resurrection of the Dead, and myjewishlearning.com, an article, Life After Death. Thank you all so much for listening. I promise that next week we'll have a much more fun and chill episode after uh, the last three being all about death and dying. On that note, goodbye.